This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Poll question of the day asking you, uh, do you want the cost of wins cap and trade plans a separate line on your utility bill, on your uh, electricity bill? 96% of you are saying yes to our poll. Uh, One that was conducted, uh, a more formal poll, shows that uh, 89%. I guess so. uh, Wynn has admitted a mistake here, and yet she's plowing ahead and, you know... uh, in not telling us what her mistake was or how we correct that moving forward. And so I guess my question to you is, after Wynn's energy plan mistake, how do we how do we trust her moving forward with cap and trade? How do we believe any of this? And at what point does she come out and say, well, that was a mistake? If she didn't do her due diligence on the green energy plan, then why are we supposed to believe that she's done it now? I don't get it. And apparently neither uh, to you, because Scott has uh, tweeted on that. We can't trust her. She doesn't uh, regret the policy that uh, formed the foundation of her mistake. She only regrets the outcry. Uh, Patrice writes, uh, very wise to explicitly state exactly where the money goes. Donors want and deserve that affirmation of their good deed. Uh, Petty writes, we can't trust her on anything. Her lying is habitual. That's pretty much, uh, I don't think that's going away. I don't think people are going to forget about that between now and the next election. And again, uh, we all want to be green. Every party's green now. Everyone's green. There's, everybody wants to save the planet and do the right thing. Uh, but we also want to make sure that our money is being spent efficiently and these plans come with due diligence, not, you know, after you're a couple of years into it, say we've made a mistake. And then while you're telling us that you're making a mistake, you're continuing a cap-and-trade plan, which we have no reason to believe has been any any better thought out than what your plan was with, with the green energy plan. And, you know, I think what she should at least do, and I've stated many times on all of this, is at least come clean and identify for everyone what the mistakes are, were, and what she's doing to correct them in changing the plan. And it's essential that she does that simply because there's other provinces that are about to head down the same path. And I'm sure they'd like to see what works and what doesn't work and understand why one does and one doesn't or or so. And same with the federal government who's heading down the same path with a lot of the same people at the helm that helped Kathleen win with her plan. I'm just not convinced they know or we know where the money's going and I'm not convinced that another mistake is is that far down the road simply because we haven't heard anything in regarding to the past mistake. Uh, and as I mentioned, a survey conducted uh, by orders of the Auditor General suggests that nearly all Ontarians who use natural gas to heat their homes want to see the costs of cap and trade clearly displayed in a, cl- a clear and concise manner as a line on their hydro bill, on their electricity bill. Uh, of course, the province has stated they're not going to do that. They're just going to mix it into that big slush fund called the delivery charge, which we never seem to know what that money is used for, and good luck following that shell game. To talk more about all of this, Vince Gasparo is with us, Managing Director of the Green Tomorrow Fund, and is with us now. Hello, Vince. How are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Tell us about uh, the Green Tomorrow Fund. So uh, the Green Tomorrow Fund is a, uh, a private equity fund, and we invest in uh, and finance uh, renewable energy projects, and we invest in uh, and finance uh, green businesses and businesses that sort of uh, engage in the in the green economy. We've been around for about six years, um, and uh, I'm uh, needless to say I'm, I'm a supporter of the of the, the Green Energy Act generally. Um, and uh, I've, I've seen what's going on uh, globally and uh, where investments are, are moving towards, where the jobs are, and the jobs are in, and the money is moving towards renewable energy. Uh, and I know we'll get, we'll get into this now, but I, you know, I just wanted to start off right at the top to, so your viewers know or your, your listeners know sort of what, what my, what my uh, sort of macro position is. So what is any idea what Kathleen Wynne's energy mistake was? Um, well, look, I, I, I think uh, the, you know, look, I, I can't read her mind, just, you know, but uh, what, I can, what I can say is I, I, I'm assuming she's referring to the, um, the, the fact that hydro rates have dramatically increased 
um, uh, over the last uh, six years. But, you know, just to be clear, that has very little to do with renewable energy. Green energy represents about 2% of Ontario's energy mix. It's a very, very small percentage. Uh, where you're seeing the dramatic costs, and, and the costs are, are, are absurd. Um, where you're seeing that is, one, in the fact that our nuclear facilities are so outdated and there's massive cost overruns in refurbishing these nuclear facilities. Just Darlington alone is costing us $13 billion, and that's one uh, nuclear uh, facility. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there have been successive governments, liberal, NDP, and conservative governments that have not invested in the infrastructure of transporting energy. So when you have energy being produced at a nuclear facility or hydroelectric in Niagara Falls or uh, renewable solar and wind, there's a, a, a ton of energy that's actually wasted as the energy is, is, is being delivered. So you could lose up to 40% of the energy that's actually produced being lost uh, as it's being, uh, being uh, transmitted to uh, the end user. So that is a huge, huge burden uh, on the system that governments have not invested in because it costs so much. And we finally have a government, uh, whether you agree with them or not, investing in these areas that need investment. And this is what happens when governments do nothing over so many decades. You finally have to pay a bill. And we're now having to pay this awful bill. You know, look, my home's heated. The, by liberals, the liberals have been in power for 15 years. Why haven't they been doing anything? Why haven't they been like, you know, again, this seems like robbing yep. Peter to pay Paul. And let's be honest, a lot of these industries that you're representing are subsidized with government money. So, again, I think your opinion's kind of biased on this. I mean, your words were absurd. And at the end of the day, uh, people are fed up with this. And, and, and if anything, if I were you, I'd be very concerned that this government is doing more to turn people against things like this than it is to help. Everybody wants to be green. Everybody wants to save the planet. Every party's doing it. The point is this party has done it without any due diligence and overspent by billions and billions and billions of dollars. Now coming forward and admitting a mistake and expecting us to go headlong into cap and trade by the same government that admits they didn't know what the hell they were doing the first time. So I guess my question to you is, are you surprised that people are pissed off at this? And are you surprised that almost 90% of the people want to see this itemized on their bill? Okay, well, hold on. You know, you're sort of mixing a whole bunch of things in here all at once. First of all, I would thank the I would thank the Ontario government for doing this because you know what? As you chat, and, and I don't mean anything uh, to be to be negative or condescending, Vince, but this yeah. is just confusing the Ontario taxpayer, left, right, and center, as each one of you blame each other. Well, the in terms of the having the the, the five dollar energy uh, charge, the cap-and-trade costs on the energy bill, I completely agree with you. Put the, put the line item there. If people are writing a check out of their own jeans to pay for that bill uh, and pay for that line item, it should, be, it should be itemized and people should see it. So I completely agree with you on that point. But the fact of the matter is renewable energy has very little to do with the increased costs on your hydro bill. And, and, you know, and, and I and, and, you know, to be clear, the government should be should come out and say that it, at renewable energy. Represents but wait a sec. Wait a sec. Energy there's energy no mix. Vince. There's no absolutely no reason for them not to do that. I mean, it would be the easiest thing to do would be to blame it on their government and other past governments for not keeping the system up to date. And again, we've been hearing that for years. I mean, it was 15, it was 15 years. It was 15 years. Yeah, but you've been using that excuse about we've been paying for it for 15 years. And again, it's been 15 years since since the, the PC government took the very first coal plant offline. So again, I, like people are getting sick and tired of using the same old excuses about this, that, and the other, and so on, especially when we're selling uh, power to people for for two and three times the, the cost of, of, of what it is. I mean, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. And I guess my question to you would be, are you worried that this government is doing more to turn people against green industry than they are to, to, to help it? Because again, I don't think this is about green. This is about due diligence. And I think Kathleen Wynne is making you guys look bad by doing such a shoddy job of this. 
Well, look, I, listen, would I, would I appreciate there being a crisp, clear communications plan coming out of, coming out of the, the, the province? The answer is absolutely. No, no question about it. And, and I think they need to do a better job. Having said that, the, the fact is, when, you, when successive governments, including the, the McGuinty government, which came in in 2003 and had to start trying to raise some capital to pay for these refurbishments that successive governments did not pay for, this is what happens. So when, uh, uh, you know, at some point someone has to, uh, the, the, the provincial government has to make some very, very difficult decisions, and that's what, there's, and that's what they're doing. In the meantime, they need to help spur... Uh, an industry here in the province of Ontario, and they started to do that. You know, w- one of the things I don't hear coming from you are all the renewable energy jobs that have been created in this province. We don't see right? them. That, that, Where are they? No, that's not true. That's and they're, yeah, but all those jobs are being all those jobs are being subsidized, Vince. If the d- no. government shut shut off those that that subsidy, they'd be out of business. The only one that's making money out of this are businesses that are getting these deals from the government. The. Uh, First of all, all energy, all energy producers, oil and gas, all the way through, get some sort of subsidy. All of them do. And, 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 you know, you can look at all the federal rules that have been in place under the conservative government the last 10 years and now, and now that are still currently in place. Oil and gas producers get a ton of, of tax credits and uh, flow-through credits that, that benefit their industries. So that's the first thing. The second thing is in terms of on a, on a per kilowatt basis, renewable energy is actually cheaper than other forms of, of power. But again, no one talks about that because it, down, it doesn't sound good in a 15-second soundbite. Yeah, but wait a sec, Vince. Why wouldn't anybody want to talk about Because that's what, what this whole thing was sold on so many years ago. So, you know, roll out, the, roll out the obvious. Roll out the success stories. Roll out everything that's going great. Roll out the stats on all the jobs. Roll it all out. That's why this whole thing was done. Nobody's producing that. Where are the jobs? Where are they? It's just not not happening and I would be very I would be very concerned if I was your organization that this government is making your whole organization look bad by not being transparent and using the green energy scheme as just a way to generate revenue for her government because she has yet to tell us what her damn mistake was and if I were you I'd be all over her to clarify that because all she's doing is turning people off your movement well, re- but you're standing, but you're getting the money from her. So what do you guys care? Well, we're not. Well, look, just to be clear, you know, we we use we use private capital to invest in renewable energy projects, uh, and you know, we've been, we've invested in renewable energy projects not only here in Ontario but in the U.S. and in uh, in Latin America. Um, so, but in terms of the Green Energy Act itself, it has created jobs. The real jobs. Uh, there was a recent article. There was has it article created that, more jobs than it has cost by people that are going out of t- out of the province because they can't afford to pay electricity bills for their businesses? I mean, there's another there's another uh, story in the Hamilton Spectator today about another uh, restaurateur that can't afford to pay their electricity bills. I mean, again, you can coat this and and package it and push it over there. Thought. Scott, that has nothing to do with renewable energy, and this is the problem. When, when, with all due respect, with guys, when guys like you in the media who have an audience mix the two together, you're doing a disservice to your listeners. It has nothing to do with renewable energy. What it has. To what do about with- the disservice that this premier is doing to the province? And where is your responsibility getting her to fix it, as opposed to me who talks about it? Don't don't blame the messenger. Blame the person who's handing you the money to run these companies and to run these. Uh, these programs and then turn around and turn people off it and again i'd be very concerned that although this government's making you guys rich it's also giving green a bad name and it's going to come about come back and bite you in the ass if it already hasn't people are pissed with this stuff and whether it's 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 you guys or the government somebody's not coming clean and all you guys are doing is blaming each other and at the end of the day, guess what? I, like, you know, the, the people are getting pissed at this. I hear about it, it every stopped. single it day. Has nothing to do. Uh, listen, it has nothing to do with renewable energy, and I'm going to keep saying it. It has to do with the massive refurbishment costs on their nuclear facilities, one. And two, the fact that we haven't had governments invest in the infrastructure to deliver the power to the end user. It has nothing to do with renewable energy. 
Okay, so that's that's the, the you know the, the main point here that has to be made clear. Renewable energy is actually Vince. With all due respect, Vince, I, with all due respect, to the province. Vince, with all due respect, I can line up professors from here to kingdom come will say the exact same opposite that you do, and they're not representing green uh, green energy. And, and by the way, I can do the same. I can do the same that can counter it. But My you know what the sad part is, Vince? The sad part is, Vince? I'm in the marketplace, and I see it every day. The sad part is, Vince, at the end of the day, while you're making money and the province and the, and the liberals stay elected, we're paying a fortune for it. That's the problem. We're paying for this mistake. Well, it... Again, it has nothing to do with renewable energy. The fact is, every, I've seen the, the power bills go up. It is awful. But again, it has nothing to do with renewable power. We should say, if you really want to fix the issue, you really want to draw attention to what the issue is, Scott, the issue is our nuclear facilities are outdated, and it's costing tens of billions of dollars to refurbish them, and it's costing tens of billions of dollars, and it's going to continue to cost tens of billions of dollars to refurbish the infrastructure to deliver power to the end user. Those are the two primary issues. So if you care about raising rates, which I do as well, and I know you do, those are the two main issues, and those are the two issues we need to focus on to fix this. Why aren't you telling Kathleen Wynne to stop using your, uh, your industry as a way to generate money for her failing government? When are you guys going to stand up and put more pressure on the government to say what you say is true? Well, uh, in terms of the government making money on renewable energy, you know, no one's ever accused the government of not making money on anything. The, gov- you know, the government is, uh, you know, taxes, taxes all of us way too much as you know and we we you know i don't you and i haven't spoken about this but i've spoken about this with others when the top marginal tax rate in the province is 53 and a half percent that's not that's not good for for anybody but um uh the fact is renewable energy has created jobs it's created employment and it's added ta- tax revenue to the province and that is a good thing you know uh the global mail about a year ago ran a report saying there's more people employed in canada uh, from renewable energy than they are from oil and gas. That's because so, it's subsidized, you know, Vince. All energy forms are subsidized, Scott. All energy forms are subsidized. When is when is when is renewable going to start generating the revenue that uh, that we're seeing from fossil fuels? And again, I'm not trying to sound like a fossil fuel burning pig. I'm all for no, renewable not. energy. I just believe that this has been incredibly mismanaged. And again, if I were you, I'd be putting a lot of pressure on this government who is giving industries like you guys a very bad name. Vince Gasparo is with us, managing director of the Green Tomorrow Fund. Vince, I thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, it was great. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We certainly all know about the opioid crisis that continues to rise across Canada uh, to just unbelievable levels. Uh, It seems that... uh, Overprescription of this uh, of opioids uh, through the last decade or so has uh, turned a lot of people, not only in Canada but all over North America, into becoming opioid dependent. And of course, there, you may have heard of the drug called uh, naloxone, which is, and I hope we're pronouncing that correctly, which is a drug that is used to treat somebody who's having an overdose and hopefully reverses the effect of the overdose. Uh, problem is, this drug is being harder, is becoming harder and harder to find as it becomes obviously supplies taxed as more and more are needing it. To talk more about all of this, David Jerlink is with us, scientist at Sunnybrook Research Institute and is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. First of all, tell us about this drug and how it works and how it uh, is much needed for people who are suffering from an opioid uh, overdose. Yes, so naloxone, and you pronounced it uh, correctly, is a it's a miraculous uh, anecdote, really. Uh, antidote, really. What what it does is for people who have an opioid overdose, it allows them to wake up and begin to breathe. Uh, the, the, the fundamental problem with opioids is that when someone has taken too many or too high a dose, or they've combined it with alcohol or some other sedating drug, their drive to breathe is suppressed. And so what we see is people they their breathing slows. And then it stops, and then after several minutes of not breathing, obviously, the brain and other organs are damaged, and that's often permanent, and people will die if it progresses. Um, naloxone uh, effectively kicks the opioid, whether it's fentanyl or oxycodone or you name it. It kicks it uh, uh, out of the receptor and allows the, it wakes people up in a matter of minutes. Uh, they're, they're back to normal. Uh, and so, you know, we use it in hospital quite a lot, but it's the sort of thing that is now... 
um, as of this past summer, it's been moved to non-prescription drug status, and you should be able to walk into any pharmacy uh, and and get a kit. Uh, how old is this drug? Newly discovered or something that's been around for a while? Oh, it's been around for decades. It's, yeah. it's, and, and, and you know what? It's actually it's pretty cheap to, to purchase. It's around uh, about two bucks a dose or so, although the companies that are selling it are often uh, sort of applying a healthy markup. Uh, so th- is there a shortage of this drug right now due to the increase in these overdoses? I don't think there's a shortage of the drug. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the problem is the drug isn't where it needs to be. Um, like there's, there's buckets and buckets of the drug in hospitals across Ontario. Uh, we, we do have drug shortages with, with other products, but the problem with, with naloxone is, you know, it needs to be given in a very timely fashion. Uh, and for that to happen, it needs to be in the vicinity of someone who's overdosing and, and in the hands of someone who is, um, you know, awake and alert and knows how to give it. And that's that's the problem right now. So uh, talk about this uh, and take us through a scenario. How do you know when someone would need it and how quickly does that person require access to it? Well, so uh, they require access within minutes. Uh, and the longer the duration uh, goes, the, the more likely it is the person will die. Uh, but you can tell someone needs naloxone uh, when they are... Um, you know, it's sort of a spectrum. So people who are, many people who are on opioids, say for chronic pain, they're not sleepy, they're, they look like normal people, um, but if they take too much of the medicine or if someone is misusing drugs and uses more than they intend, um, they become sleepy and then they're very difficult to rouse. And so I would say the prime candidate for someone who uh, needs naloxone is somebody who is, uh, you know, uh, unrousable, appears to be asleep, uh, they're often snoring or they're making these unusual breathing sounds very loudly, typically once or twice a minute, which is a very, very slow respiratory rate. And that's the kind of person who can be given this drug as an injection or sometimes it's given as a spray into the nose. So this isn't like an uh, anaphylactic shock sort of thing where your airways close. This is just you just stop breathing. Is that yeah. correct? Well, they're both medical emergencies. And so, you know, it's, there is, I think there's some considerable analogy between the EpiPen and anaphylaxis and naloxone and opioid overdose. I mean, you've got, you've got a limited window of time to give it. Um, the, the mechanism of death is different. When people have anaphylaxis, they, as you say, their, their airway uh, becomes inflamed and swollen and their blood pressure drops. They die through a different mechanism. With, with opioids, when people die, it's generally because they've stopped breathing. Hmm. So uh, you said there's lots of it, there isn't a shortage, but it just isn't in the right places. How do we resolve that? Where should it be? Um, well, it's, it should be, first of all, in every pharmacy in Ontario. I mean, so the, the government a few months ago um, made it possible for pharmacies to stock uh, naloxone, the brand name is Narcan, uh, these kits. And so you should be able to walk into a pharmacy and, you know, ask a pharmacist for a kit. Um, they will do a little sort of teaching session. They'll collect your health card number, and it should be free, at least in Ontario. Other provinces give it away for free as well. Uh, and the cost is borne by the provincial government. But what we're finding is that very few pharmacies actually have the stuff on site. Um, it's not entirely clear why that is. Some of them, I guess, don't have much demand, but uh, um, you know, it really should be everywhere. I think it should also be in places where there's a reasonably foreseeable chance of someone having an overdose. So a nightclub, for example. I mean, I think every nightclub in Ontario should have mm. uh, a naloxone kit. High schools, you know, you, you should be able to go to, you know, and, and certainly in parts of um, the cities and towns where overdoses are particularly common. With, obviously, the increase uh, in overdoses we're seeing, is it just a matter of time before that sort of thing happens? Um, can you rephrase your question? Uh, with all the overdoses that we've been experiencing lately, is it just a matter of time before we see it in every place like that, like well, a school, like nightclubs, that sort of thing? Well, I think that... Um, uh, getting it uh, everywhere, it will take two things. One, it would take someone to sort of make that happen. And I'm not sure that there's a responsible individual who'd be doing that. But the other is it would cost some money. Uh, it would cost quite a lot of money, actually, to have, you know, for, you know, if there was to be a, if the government was to pay for a naloxone kit in every nightclub and every high school in, you know, uh, in Ontario, that would come to quite a lot of money rather quickly. I think that really shouldn't be a consideration, but I suspect it probably is. 
Uh, and these right now you should be able to get off the shelf. You don't need prescription for these kits. Correct. Correct. Earlier this year, the new federal government, um, or the federal government arranged for the transition of naloxone from a prescription drug to a non-prescription drug. So you should be able to go into a pharmacy and get a kit. Uh, no questions asked. Um, far, so, does the pharmacies do the pharmacies show interest in stocking this? I mean, if it is so widely needed in certain areas, why would it not be just be a no-brainer? Well, I think some pharmacies do. So, one of the conditions of your pharmacy, if you're, if you're a pharmacy owner, if you want to have this stuff available, uh, you, one of your, at least one of your pharmacists, I understand, has to take a course, or you know, it's an hour mm-hmm. and a half long kind of session on how to teach people how to use the stuff. Um, I, I personally think that's overkill. I mean, I was a pharmacist, actually, for five years in Nova Scotia way, way back. Um, and this is not a complicated drug to use. I mean, you, it would be a 30-second you know, YouTube video that would teach people just as much on how to use it, or maybe a minute long. Um, but it's such a valuable drug that uh, the, the, there, there still are sort of barriers in place. I think there's some inertia at the pharmacy level where some pharmacies just don't bother or they don't have a pharmacist on staff who's gone through the training. But I think the training itself really shouldn't be necessary. I mean, this is not rocket science. Um, where can we get it now if someone needs it? Uh, well, re- the reality is it's going to be a first responder. It'll be in an ambulance arrives. If, you've got a, if, you've got, if you're with somebody who's sort of nodding off and then becomes unconscious and you have reason to believe that they've you know, taken too much pain medicine or they've, you know, snorted uh, or, or you know, used fentanyl or what have you, um, it, the most likely person to save that individual's life will be a person with a kit and they will likely arrive with sirens blazing. So it's going to be an ambulance, um, you know, a paramedic, for example. Um, but, I mean, to me it's crazy that you can't just, you know, go across the street to a drugstore and get a kit and just give it to the person. So when someone does have an overdose and is giving this drug, what happens then? They still have to get to hospital, do they Correct. not? Yeah, so, so the drug doesn't last forever. Right? So typically, it's a bit faster if you inject it into the nose, but if you, if you inject it uh, into the tissues, you know, into the thigh, for example, uh, it will kick in within a couple of minutes. The person will wake up, um, provided they haven't sustained severe brain damage. They will uh, begin to breathe normally. Um, but and then you've got you know 20 30 minutes to get them to hospital where they can be monitored because because what will happen um, in the alternative is that the, nar- the, the naloxone will wear off and what we sometimes see is people you know they're 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 uh, they wake from their overdose they're normal and then you know an hour later they're kind of dozing off again as the as the naloxone is wearing off and the drug that was causing the problem in the first place is still hanging around. Uh, worried that uh, people will become reliant on this, uh, won't get proper counseling, won't try to get help because they know their life is safer if they have this. Oh, I uh, well, unless I misunderstood your question, I don't think that should be a concern. I mean, there are people who use drugs intravenously uh, who choose to do so in environments where naloxone is available and someone who knows how to resuscitate them is around. Um, that's how it should be. Uh, the, um, so if people come to rely on naloxone, you know, good for them. I mean, the alternative is not relying on naloxone at all. I mean, ideally, yeah. they, would have, you know, they would have access to drugs that are safer, like actual prescription drugs that can help them get off heroin or fentanyl, and they'd have access to supports. But there are some people who just don't want to do that. And for those people, they should have access to naloxone. Uh, does it give the user a false sense of security? Is it the is it is it that lifesaver that everyone thinks it is? Is it um... well? Um, I'm 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 not sure I'd use the word false. It gives it should give a user if a person is choosing to use drugs, uh, if doing so in the vicinity of someone who is armed with naloxone gives them a sense a valid sense of security. It's not nothing false about it. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, ideally, that person, uh, as I said before, would have access to supports to help them kick their addiction, but, but not everybody who's got addiction wants to do that. And so um, and one of the problems nowadays and why this is becoming such a, um, a hot topic is because people don't know what they're injecting. So somebody might think they're injecting heroin, but what they're really injecting is fentanyl. It's been added, you know, bootleg chemical that's been added to heroin to increase its kick and increase the profit margin for the criminals who are selling it. Um, you know, the, How does it increase the increase the profit margin? Why well, are people you, putting this in this drug? What? Yeah, so I mean, you can. Uh, it's it's a chemical. Fentanyl is a very strong opioid that can be produced in massive quantities um, uh, for a relatively low price. So, mm-hmm. if, so if you had ten thousand dollars to spend and you went on the internet, you could order fentanyl from 
a kilogram of fentanyl from China, which is, you know, millions of doses of the stuff, and you could add it to heroin or, you know, or some other product. If you turn it into a pill, you could put it in heroin powder. I guess my point is, why would you want, and I don't know because I'm not familiar with these things, but why would somebody add uh, fentanyl to a heroin? Why wouldn't they just sell their heroin? Just oh, to, to, to make it stretch longer? Because No, because fentanyl is, uh, is so... Uh, inexpensive to acquire right. uh, that you can add a little bit to heroin and right. make, make your supply go a much longer way. Sure. Um, how difficult is it to get off these drugs? It's very hard. And so even, and this applies to people, by the way, who are taking opioids for chronic pain um, and who aren't addicted. They're just physically dependent. And so what happens there is the body becomes accustomed to the presence of the drug. So if you're if you're my patient and I put you on um, OxyContin or some other opioid, you know, after a week of therapy, um, if you said, I'm just going to stop, um, and you stopped your therapy, you'd become sick. You, you're, you would develop symptoms of opioid withdrawal. You'd feel miserable. You would have pain flare-up. You'd, uh, you'd have cramping and diarrhea, and you'd, you'd feel like a really, really horrible flu, um, or, or, or worse if you've been injecting it. So, uh, so that the problem is that the, that's one of the uh, the things that keeps people coming back, coming back to these drugs. Right. You know, if you knew, you, you imagine the worst flu you've ever had, and multiply it by ten. And if you knew that all you had to do was to make to make the flu go away was to take the drug again, mm-hmm. people, you would, right? Most people would. Wow. So this is going to sound like a stupid question, but is there anything good about this drug other than people who are perhaps terminally ill and have unbelievable pain? About which drug, fentanyl? Yeah. Oh, it's a very versatile drug. I mean, we use it in the hospital quite a lot. Um, I don't happen to think it's an ideal drug for long-term management of chronic pain. It's been. But even you said, like, you even, even just a week of taking this, oh. it's extremely difficult to come off of. How long would you give a, to, to a normal patient, even if well, they are in pain? Yeah, well, so that's, a, that's, that's the crux of this entire problem. Yeah. So for 20 years now, it's not just fentanyl. It's OxyContin and morphine and, and hydromorphone, Dilaudid. Um, for 20 years now, doctors have been prescribing opioids for chronic pain because we got the message in the 1990s that it was safe and effective to do so and that you didn't have to worry about causing addiction. Um, none of those things is true. So you can, you know, in cautious hands, a doctor who knows what he or she is doing can, um, I think, help some patients with chronic pain um, live better lives and have, you know, a good quality of life with opioids. But, but we've, been, we've been really over-prescribing them and giving, to, giving them to people who really, I think, have been harmed more than helped by the therapy. The problem is that those people in Canada are now out there by the hundreds of thousands. Um, many of them, by the way, they think they need their medicine. And, and the reason they think that is because without it, they feel sick. Well, mm. that's because they're in withdrawal. So, um, uh, you know, the, I think what we're seeing now is a, a shift in medical practice away from relying on opioids for chronic pain, which is a separate um, yeah, kettle of fish altogether. How long does it take to get off of this? How long does it take before that, those uh, symptoms stop that you were talking about? It depends a bit on the drug the person's on and how they're using it. But, you know, typically it's about a week or so of, you know, really unpleasant physical symptoms. But there's often in the months afterwards, even for even a year or more afterwards, after being on opioids chronically, there's a, there's a, there's a syndrome that's a little bit hard to characterize. But people, they're, they're often just not the same as they were. Um, they're often, you know, they often seem depressed or down or their, their mood is low. Um, and whether or not that's from the removal of a drug or not is somewhat hard to say. Um, but I think the physical stuff, the really unpleasant, horrible physical stuff is typically over in sort of five to seven days. Hmm. Who should be on these drugs? Who shouldn't? You'll get a very different question to, the, to answer to that question depending on who you ask. Mm. My, my view is that these drugs have a very important role to play opioids generally in people at end of life, people with pain from cancer. I mean, they're invaluable in those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are some people with chronic pain who, uh, who can use opioids but at low doses, not the hundreds of milligrams that we've been advocating for the last you know, few decades. Um, but I think that um, I would say that, you know, somewhere less than 5% of people with chronic pain um, should be on opioids, and they should be on very, very judicious doses. That, that's clearly not what's happening today. Are we getting a handle on this, doctor? Are we, I mean, we're certainly talking about it a lot. Are, 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 can we see the end in sight, or has this not peaked yet? 
Uh, well, no, it's evolved. So what what we have seen over the last five or six years is, you know, do- as doctors become l- l- less and less keen to prescribe opioids, what we're seeing is people who have opioid addiction, um, you know, resorting to cheaper, more accessible opioids like fentanyl and heroin. And so, and those people are starting to die in very large numbers because they don't know what they're injecting, for example, or because people who are buying what they think is OxyContin on the street are actually buying some tablet made in some guy's basement that's got, you know, a massive amount of fentanyl in it, and they just don't know what they're getting. So um, I, I think we are, um, we are seeing more judicious use of opiates for chronic pain. Um, we are seeing also some doctors harming patients, by the way, with chronic pain by cutting them off their opioids too quickly. That's a very dangerous thing to do. If I have a patient who comes to me, and they're on a fentanyl patch long term, um, and for whatever reason, I'd say, listen, we've got to get off this. You don't just stop that. I mean, that, that's asking for trouble, that, that you're going to make somebody very sick um, in the process. So, um, you know, it's, this was the subject. This whole issue was the subject of a, a federal conference a few weeks ago in mm-hmm. Ottawa. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there is a, an appreciation of the scale, the enormity of it. And we've lost 25,000 Canadians over the last two decades from opioids. Um, and more are dying every day. There's a, there's an appreciation of the scale of the problem. The point, the problem is that the things that need to be done to address it are just being done piecemeal, and I think far too slowly. Dr. David Gerlink has been with the scientist at Sunnybrook Medical or Sunnybrook Research Institute, talking about the opioid crisis and naloxone, which is of course used to treat an overdose. David, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Maybe it'll make us feel a little bit better up here if we talk about what's happening south of the border. Uh, Donald Trump has been using Twitter as his main form of communication with people he will be leading, but there have been people who've been blocked from viewing. Oh, man. Can you imagine that? Well, I don't agree with the president, but I'd like to follow his tweets and see what he's up to. Nope, sorry. You don't agree with what I say, or you're, you're spreading rubbish about me, so I'm going to defriend you. Now, wait a sec. The whole idea behind uh, Twitter was to make accessibility to the president a little easier, or at least open the lines of communication, because the media is biased. And they'll pick and choose out of, you know, the Donald's four minutes, five minute speech. They'll pick out the 30 seconds they want and best, I guess, drives their point home. I mean, that's I would normally not say that being in the media, but it was pretty obvious during the last election that I I think people are as cynical about the media as they are about the politicians now. And I don't blame them. So Donald takes to Twitter because he controls the message. He puts out a five-minute speech. There it is. All of his loyal followers get it before any media outlets got a chance to carve it up. Then they carve it up and they play what they want on their newscasts anyway. But then all of a sudden when you start defriending people, aren't you stopping them from getting the message? It's kind of odd. Uh, Let's talk about that and, of course, uh, some of the informal phone calls he seems to be having with people who he probably shouldn't be having with. Uh, Taiwan comes to mind. Let's bring in Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Hello, Barry. How are you today? Good afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to join us as uh, we slowly see these things roll out. What is what are your thoughts uh, post-election at this point? Oh, goodness, lots of thoughts. Uh, I've never thought that consistency had much to do with Donald Trump's style of operating on any level. Um, the defriending for matter, for example, that you're just referring to, I think may just be an example to get more media attention. Um, he loves media Boy, that's attention. a valid point, isn't it? He loves media attention. He, uh, I mean, he'll criticize um, oh, Saturday Night Live, for example, and claim that uh, nobody should watch it, but he watches it, and then yeah. he talks about it, and he gives it more attention. Um, so th- this notion of there being any, any kind of consistency, and I, we could talk about it in policy terms, too. Uh, he makes up all sorts of things, most recently talking about the fact that there were millions of illegal votes in the election, which no Republican has, has been able to support, and he's given no evidence for it all. He just makes it up as he goes along. Uh, you know, there's other questions I suspect you're going to want to raise about his style of operating, but the notion that there's any real attempt for consistency. I've never thought had anything to do with Donald Trump. Will that change as he becomes president? Won't it have to? 
one would think, I mean, you know, when people like me come on the air I'm basically, and ask opinions, I'm basically talking about how things have been done in the past and yeah. projecting into the future. It's not clear he's going to do a great deal um, that's been done in the past. I, mean, I think that um, presidential press conferences, for example, may be a thing of the past. He's got his Twitter followers. I, I personally am not a social media person, and I've never understood how much can be accounted for in 144 characters. Mm. I can't begin to communicate that way, and I don't think anything of real substance can be communicated that way. You can, you can put in catchphrases and words. And I, uh, clearly he wants to control his message as much as possible. But the notion of befriending people that are already listening, I think, is just so that the media will, in fact, cover that story so they get more attention. During the election campaign, he was, um, for a while, he pushed out, I think, the Washington Post. He denied them press c- c- credentials at his meetings. He also subsequently changed. But all of that, too, was just to generate publicity. If he's defriending people or he's sort of excommunicating media coverage from his campaigns, it's a way of getting even more media attention, just as we're talking about it now. What are your thoughts on the victory tour, uh, the victory lap? I, I guess he's not the first one to do it, but certainly the first one to do it the way he's done it and getting to the point where people are chanting Locker up again regarding Hillary. I mean, this is the same sort of... Um, <laughs> I'll choose my words carefully. This was the I was I was going to use something vulgar, but this is the same sort of stuff he was doing during the election. It's, it's why why, why um, do this now? Look, um, I I personally, you know, again, if I, I've been on, people have heard me in the air before, they'll know I'm not particularly a fan of of Trump. I think he's got a personality disorder. He he needs to be he needs to be surrounded by adulation and attention perpetually. He needs people to be paying attention to him. He needs the love kind of like King Lear in, in the Shakespeare play. Yeah. He needs to be told how much he's loved. And he will do all these very... And he is a master, certainly, of media manipulation. Um, he, he just enjoys speaking to crowds. I don't think he really wants to be... I never thought he really wanted to be president in the sense of having an agenda of things he wanted to do. I think he just wants to be surrounded by people that want to pay attention to him. Yeah. I think he's already subcontracting much of the... And we're in, just in the early stages of all this to begin with. He's just pointing people. He loves to have this parade of, of, of prominent politicians coming through his hotel and being able to, to get the coverage from it. Hmm. I'm sure some of it is useful, but this isn't the way that previous uh, presidents, uh, presidents elect. I have find been, have been selecting people. Barry, I find it fascinating watching CNN post-election. It seems now they realize it's not just a bunch of racists that voted for Donald Trump, but underestimated America's disdain for parties or or, or governments uh, in the status quo. Um, Now that we have got to this point, could he have been elected anyway without all the insults and the controversy? Could he have just been elected as an alternative to the status quo? It might have. I think it was perhaps even more important at the primary level when he was up against 16 other Republican candidates to do things in a very different kind of way and to appeal to people who were just fed up with the system, which is genuine enough. There's plenty of grounds for people to be unhappy with the way the dysfunction of American politics and the way it doesn't work. Uh, once he got into it and was su- surprisingly successful, I don't think he ever thought he was going to win the nomination, much less the presidency, yeah. when he first got in. But once he, he tasted a bit of success, he kept doing it the same way. He doesn't listen to his advisors, or frequently hasn't listened to his advisors. I don't want to say never. Uh, but he just does things so differently. To try to predict how he's going to do things in the future really is a mugs game to me at this point. I don't think, I, I think there are going to be a number of problems. Among the, th- the examples we see with regard to just the Secretary of State nomination, um, a, a few weeks ago, he was talking about a be Giuliani versus Romney, and little by little, he's still milking that story for as much as he can get. Uh, they, we're told there's three options, then four, then five. More names keep coming up. I think he just loves the media attention from, from uh, de- dealing with the story. What it suggests, though, at some point when he actually is the president, that indeed this is going to be a very leaky White House, and that it is not going to be a particularly smoothly run operation. Uh, when, when Obama was um, elected and, and replaced George W. Bush, he wanted very much, there was the, the phrase, no drama Obama, of course, it, it rhymed, so the media picked it up for that reason. But he wanted to do things differently than the kind of the crazy and dysfunction that seemed to exist in the, uh, the George W. Bush years. I think with Trump, we're back to more dysfunction than ever. I think there's just going to be, I think he loves the drama, he loves the excitement, loves the attention, yeah. um, what, whatever it is. And then, uh, right now, he's just at the point of picking uh, cabinet officials. 
But I think this is what we're in for for the next four years in terms of the fact he just loves the attention more than he's particularly concerned about a particular approach or a particular ideological orientation toward making policy. Is the consensus now Americans were looking for the alternative, got him and willing to take him despite his faults just to stop the status quo? I mean, well, it was, a, it was certainly there was a, a, a choice of, of, of negatives and the Democrats didn't understand early on how negative the feelings were toward um, toward Hillary Clinton. To think that, that, that it was just about racists, uh, the, the proportion of Americans that are genuinely racist and vote that way is, is I think, very much a small fraction. Mm-hmm. But there, it's, America is a very divided country. If, to say it's 50-50 isn't exactly right, but it's, it's close to that. We've had very competitive elections in, in recent years. And what, what was interesting about the, it wasn't just racist, that was perhaps a little bit of it. I think people that are genuinely hostile to minorities are probably more, orient, more oriented toward yeah. the, uh, the Republicans anyway. Mm-hmm. But there were clearly white working class um, vo- voters, particularly men with, uh, with high school education, who are little by little uh, diminishing in terms of their economic standing in society. And they were the ones who in other years would have been Democrats or indeed wouldn't have voted at all, that moved over and made enough difference Remember, it was just those three key states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and, uh, and um, Pennsylvania, where something on the order of about 100,000 votes. Just to put that in perspective, that's less than one-tenth of one percent of all of the people that voted in the election. There, were, there was the difference in those states. Hillary Clinton actually has won. The, the numbers keep changing, but she's up by about 2.5 million votes now. Her margin in popular vote was 2% greater than, than Trump, but in those states... Those people that were normally not Republican but moved toward the Republican were enough to make the difference. In a close election like this, all sorts of things can be said to have been the difference. Certainly, uh, the Comey comments were a factor, perhaps an anti-woman vote. There were a number of factors that could have made the difference when the, the difference ultimately in those three states was so, was so, not, so small. Um, uh, so there's a lot of things we can say that made the difference, but we shouldn't forget about the fact that Hillary Clinton actually won by a substantial margin in terms of popular vote. Again, you know, uh, and I'm not picking sides on this, Barry, by any means, but it seems whenever there's an election, doesn't matter whether it's here or, or down there, uh, the loser always talks about recounts or, or electoral reform in some way. I mean, are we just beating a dead horse here? Oh, uh, not necessarily. Certainly, we're still talking about electoral reform in Canada. It was, it was uh, Justin Trudeau that brought it up here. He, he brought it up and was committed to it at a time when, in fact, the Liberals were running third in the polls. This is the beginning of yeah. our election. Yeah. It's not always the losers that talk about electoral reform. In that case, it was the party that ultimately won that, that was talking about Yeah, it. but he, he hasn't talk, he, he's talking about it very little since after yeah, he won. And that he is, I don't think it's going to happen yeah. in Canada. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, At the end of the day, it's, you know, does the public care about this? Nobody cares. It's over. They lost. I know and... The people that we're losing, certainly the supporters yeah. um, of, of Hillary and the supporters perhaps of other people in other places, including the Brexit vote in England, uh, they might like to have, have a recount. But the recount isn't going to change things. And it was really not Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. It was the Green Party, yeah. Bill Stein, who was pushing the recount. That's become somewhat of a joke now because of the appeals and the counter-appeals. I don't expect a great deal of consistency among any of the politicians, but certainly among the worst with regard to that and with regard to transparency is Trump. Uh, it seems that everyone's talking about how Trump won rather than how Hillary lost. Uh, you know, that, you know, the guy on CNN even called it a, a white lash at one time that all these, you know, he, Donald Trump mobilized all these angry white voters. Um, what about all the, the, the six million Democrats that voted for uh, Barack but stayed home with Hillary. Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, to me, that seems like a baseball and analogy where two teams are coming together and playing, and one of the team has a full squad, the other team doesn't, and then the team that loses said, well, we only had four guys. Well, yeah. In, in <laughs> I mean, how is that? Election, I don't understand how that's an argument. In a close election, lots of things can be trotted out, and I don't want to suggest that racism may not have made the difference among some people, but one can offer 20, 20 reasons as to why the, you know, why it occurred, and remembering that, in fact, Hillary did have a substantially higher higher popular vote. Um, a lot of it, the term white lash is just sort of a media confection. I hadn't heard that term even before this this particular campaign. Well, if it was if it was a white lash, does that mean electing Barack Obama for two terms was a black lash? I mean, can exactly, we say that? Exactly. That's terrible. Um, it, there, there was certainly, I'm not even sure that Trump's a racist, but he without question made racial appeals. Oh, yeah. Um, and then people like uh, um, the Breitbart executive, uh, Bannon, that's, uh, that's his... Uh, one of his chief advisors, have certainly done this kind of thing in the past. 
I frankly think he's he's kind of just a huckster that will use any argument, and yeah. in the, very much in the spirit of P.T. Barnum, and into they'll make any argument to be successful. I, I don't even think he has strong feelings about what he wants to do as president. He does have a few feels of the things he's concerned about. Economic nationalism is certainly one. He thinks that Americans have been treated unfairly with regard to trade examples. But many of the issues that he he has sort of expressed opinions about, he's been on the other side of the issues. Issues yeah. like abortion, issues like gun control. <laughs> I think been, he was a Democrat for more years than he was a Republican. I think your uh, P.T. Barnum analogy, that's pretty much perfect. Uh, Taiwan, obviously, uh, a lot of people stepped on a lot of toes with that one. Um, what's the protocol there? How does well, he all of a sudden accept this call? It's hard for people to, you know, many in the public perhaps to understand, but part of the arrangement, the recognition of a one-China policy is that from the American perspective, and generally from the Western perspective, Canada included, is that Canada does not recognize Taiwan as a separate country, and that's meant that they have not had face-to-face dealings in any way, even to the extent of phone calls with, with Taiwan. Uh, America does sell weaponry and, in fact, has interceded to make sure that China would not militarily attack Taiwan. But that, that's been the protocol of the past. His apologists now are coming out, people like Kellyanne uh, Conway, are suggesting that this was sort of planned all along. But I, I think most of the time Trump's just winging it. He just sort of makes stuff up as he goes along. And I say that not just with regard to the China uh, arrange, arrangement, because, in fact, possibly this was thought out. But he's had very controversial phone calls with others, including the Pakistanis, who he was praising to the hilt in the phone call that was released, the, the uh, tape of it was released by the, the, the Pakistanis. But in fact, he's, in the past, he's been very critical. And Pakistani is, is a country full of problems. And to suggest that they, they've got wonderful people doing wonderful things, as was suggested in the tape, is nonsense. Uh, I think he's just, if people say nice things to him, he'll say nice things to everybody else about everything. Totally insincere. Not unique among politicians, but perhaps even more extensive in terms of the the lack of transparency and lack of sincerity. Uh, Also, with regard to the Filipino president, who is in the process of having uh, people charged with criminality murdered in the hundreds, perhaps even in the thousands, saying nice things to him. Um, I, I just don't think it's thought out at all. Uh, this is just prelude, though. I mean, goodness knows what's going to happen. He's not even uh, president for another uh, month and a half to, to, to try to figure out what's going to happen once he is president. My hunch is he's going to defer a lot of things to, uh, to, to Mike Pence and to others around him, but who knows? He's capable. If you say nice things to him, he'll say nice things to you, and that people like the Taiwanese president, people like the, uh, the Pakistani president, were only too happy to have the uh, transcript of those particular conversations released because it flatters them within their own context. I don't think the Indians are particu- the Indian government is particularly happy about the Pakistani government being praised for the big wonderful people and the way they're doing things. Uh, but he, he, he talks with, he's not the first politician, certainly, to speak without thinking. But he does it in, in such a promiscuous way all the time about everything that I think at some point down the road it's going to very much lead to problems in terms of his being taken seriously in the, in the White House. He's going to be there for the next four years. He's going to do all sorts of things. Global warming certainly going to be an issue that a lot of people here are going to be unhappy with. I think he's going to try to rewrite the book with regard to trade, including possibly with Canada. I think the softwood lumber industry in our country may well find itself in more jeopardy than it was in the past. Same with agriculture. We're going to have problems with him, but this is just sort of the curtain raiser. We have no idea to what extent um, his, his winging it and just sort of making things up as he goes along is going to lead to all sorts of policy tangles. It's like waiting for the season premiere of Survivor. Uh, or The Apprentice, I guess, he in his plays case. It that way. He's been successful with it, and I, yeah. I don't think he t- has deep thoughts about much of anything. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but in general, the person that wrote the book, uh, Tony Schwartz, uh, The Art of the Deal, with him, and basically wrote the book, he'd said the stories, and Schwartz wrote the book, has suggested that he's got the attention span of a gnat. He just can't concentrate. He doesn't read reports. He can't concentrate on anything for any length of time. He just goes with his gut feeling, and we're seeing instances of it now, but this is just the beginning. There's going to be so much more of this in, in the, the months and years to come. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Happy to talk to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.